Well, I've been going back and forth a little bit on which, which analogy to pick up at the start here. There's two that are kind of comical in one sense. Just a little while, just a little longer. We'll make it, we'll get there. You all know that. You remember telling that to your children, your children asking, how long till we get there? Just wait a little while. Uh, and then same with sermons, right? Just a little while, we'll get to the end. Uh, and, then, and then joy in the morning. Like how many are morning people? Like, oh yeah, okay, good. Well, there's a few of us. Uh, but, you know, you're sitting next to a whole lot of people that have really trouble finding joy in the morning. But no, it's biblical, and it's a promise. Joy in the morning might not happen until glory for some of you. But joy in the morning. Well, let's go back to the, let's go back to the time one. Uh, I don't remember who uh, noted this or where I heard it. Maybe it was here somewhere. Time is not relative, but our experience of it uh, is subject to how much of it we have experienced. Okay, so I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the 50 decade, somewhere in there. Some of you are lower than that. Some of you are higher than that. Some have birthdays, big birthdays, celebrating. Uh, and then, you know, so, so we'll just use round numbers. I'm 50. Say, say there's a five-year-old. Now, you take a year's length of time and you figure out the percentage. A year out of 50 is what percent? 2%? A year out of 5 is 20%. Do you suspect that your experience of that year is going to be different when you're five, counting down the days till Christmas, as opposed to when you're 50, counting down the days till Christmas? No wonder I get behind. It, goes, it does go faster. No, not really, but my experience of it. Now, imagine, as if we could, someone who dwells in eternity. Like, what, what in the world percentage could you ever, you, you couldn't? In fact, just poetically, all we can say in a poetic way, uh, as the, I think it's the psalm, and, and in Peter quotes it, a day is as a thousand years under the Lord. And it's with, it's with that eternal perspective that Jesus says, just a little while, to the disciples. Hang in there, just a little while, and they say, what in the world? There's, there's immense Immense confusion in this experience and in this teaching. Now, they've been with Jesus since chapter 13, right, in this discourse. And this is called the, the upper room discourse, but it, it appears that it's really just chapter 14 that's in the upper room, and then they're taken to the road and heading over toward uh, the Mount of Olives and the Kidron Valley and uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. But nonetheless, we call the whole thing kind of the... the, the uh, upper room discourse, including chapter 17, which is the Lord's high priestly prayer, the real Lord's prayer. And and they're hearing all this, and they're moving, they're trying to finish up the last meal, the last supper, which Jesus turned turned into a meal for the new covenant. It's not Passover anymore, anything like that. He turned it into a new meal, new covenant. And they're whirling in their minds with all this, and then he says, just a little while, you'll 
you'll not see me, and then a little while longer you'll see me again. And they're like, what is he talking about? And then Jesus goes on, Jesus picks up in a divine way. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're talking about. And we've seen this in John's Gospel periodically throughout. He, he knows things. No one's told him anything. He just knows that the woman is at the well. He just knows that there's a guy uh, who's a brother of another guy who's having a dream and tells him what the dream is, Jacob's ladder going up and down. And people respond to this divine insight, this divine wisdom, like, you must be God. Well, yes, he is. Well, Jesus goes on to explain then, because he knows what they're thinking, and they can't figure it out. In fact, they're really confused. And it's in this confusion, they make themselves even more confused. What do they do? The chapter says they start talking to one another. What does he mean? You know, they don't go to him. They don't ask the one who's, who's saying, we have that too, right? We don't want to look foolish or silly, uh, and so we won't ask the questions. I just don't even know what to ask. I don't even know. I can't come up with good questions. I don't even know what that is. I like hearing what other people have to ask. These guys, they're just mutual ignorance sharing session group. And Jesus just kind of stops them. He says, don't go any further, guys. Let me tell you truly, truly what I mean. And he explains, and he explains this in a way which was well read for us. And then they say, oh, now we get it. And I'm sitting there like, I don't. <laughs> like, he just said the same thing he did before. Like, how come they got it now? And I'll, maybe, maybe repetition is good, right, for the mind. I don't know. But I still like, what in the world is he saying? Where is he going with this? It's been difficult, in a sense, to outline the upper room discourse because uh, not that it's circular in its reasoning, but Jesus hits a topic, comes back to it, and comes back to it. It's kind of reciprocating, coming back to these themes over and again. And he's summarizing these things. But there is confusion about the Father's plan. What does he mean? We don't know what he's talking about. Verse 18. There is confusion. Our thinking gets muddled and we can come up with wrong assumptions about the plan, purpose, and timing of God. And this is a perennial problem. This isn't the first time. In John chapter 14, we'll just kind of work backwards from where we are. John 14 and verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Right? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to the Father. He has to explain. We don't know where you're going, Thomas says. Uh, John 13, even back a little bit, he uses this little while phrase again. Children, just a little while and I'm with you. You'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then, you know, there's a little more going on. And then verse 36, Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow afterward. Jesus says, why can't I follow you now? Well, yeah, you pick up on that. Uh, slow to get it. It's hard to understand. What is he talking about? Where is he going? And then there's something even just more, well, it's not more serious, but it has a different emotion. In John chapter 11. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is ill. In verse 3, they tell him, the sisters sent to him, that is Mary and Martha, 
Lord, he whom you love is ill. And he, he gives some response. This won't end in death. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, verse 5. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. What? Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Is that what love looks like? What? Wow! Now, there's other confusion. Uh, he says he, the disciples get confused over this whole thing. But I think, I think we have, again, back to timing, and just a little while, we too have confusion, bewilderment over God's timing, over how he demonstrates his love, the ways that he shows it. Yeah, confusion. We encounter moments, if not seasons, of confusion regarding the Father's plans, providences, purposes, and timing. Well, the, the rest of this chapter unfolds then about relationship. And in the meantime, in the little, this little while, how do we find the comfort that we need, and how do we find the strength to persevere and keep on going? Well, we find it in relationship. Relationship with the triune God. In particular, the ability to call upon God as our Father through the name Jesus Christ and in the power, in the realm of the Holy Spirit. And that's what this abiding section has been about. Over and again, this word abiding or remaining or dwelling is repeated throughout this, these chapters. Indeed, it's a key word in John's theology in all of his writing. Abiding, dwelling with God, fellowship with God, union with Christ, and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Well, in verses 19 to 24, I, there's a lot that we could unpack, but I want to summarize it in this application the joy of the father's forgiveness verses 19 to 24 jesus knew what they wanted to ask him so he said to them is this what you're asking yourselves what i meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me and again a little while and you'll see me now here's one of his truly truly statements truly truly i say to you you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you'll ask nothing from me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be 
full. Jesus knows what they're thinking, knows what they're discussing, and now he, he unpacks it and he says, I'm referring to my death, my crucifixion. I'm going to die. And he mentioned this suffering, being betrayed into the hands of the Jews, the religious leaders of the day, and that's what he's referring to. And he'll be gone, dead, buried in the tomb, three days, three nights. And their sorrow will abide. They'll be sorrowful on a number of accounts. Sorrow for their own personal loss. They've been with Jesus some three and a half years. Their teacher, their mentor, their friend. He's gone. He had called them out of fishing to be fishers of men. Now what are they going to do? You know, that's a real deep personal loss. But there's also this loss that's, that's in the middle of the world. The world's rejoicing. The world is rejoicing, particularly the religious community is rejoicing because Jesus is dead. And then they go off and celebrate Passover. Having slain the real Passover lamb. And, and the disciples are abiding these, these hours, watching the world go by and all of its festivities and all of its religious worship, and they're lost. The disciples are, are lost in their grief and can't figure this out. They're sorrowful. But there's also the sorrow of their personal disappointment. Jesus will allude to this uh, early, later in about verse 31 and 32. He says he's going to be left alone. Jesus will be left. All the disciples will leave him. And some will be, one will betray and is working on it at this moment in the narrative, and another will deny him, even knowing him, three times. And they will have that sorrow of personal failure personal disappointment. But this is the sequence that Jesus says. He says, you will be sorrowful. He doesn't tell us that we won't be sorrowful. You will be sorrowful. But sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 20. The world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And Jesus likens this to birth. I suppose, in a way, it's kind of a, of, uh, a pun to talk about labor on Labor Day. I didn't plan that. And maybe I shouldn't have said that. The sorrow of labor pains. I've been... I've been at St. Mary's for birthing uh, six times. And walk in the halls and even just the doors open. I mean, some of it's cultural. Different, different cultures deal with pain and sorrow and grief different ways. And some are a bit louder than others. Some personality types deal with it in different ways. But there, there are, there's pain. 
There are tears, there's screams, there's clenched fists, there's squeezed hands, there's loss of breath. It hurts. I can only imagine. Now, the second time, I really didn't have a full sensitivity to that, and the doctor and I were talking about Bible studies. <laughs> well, finally, we've got my attention back on, on where it's supposed to be. And, but, but that becomes paradigmatic for my whole career, right? Well, but first is the suffering, then the glory, the joy of life. And, and Jesus is, in fact, called the firstborn from the dead, isn't he? He's going to go through this sorrow. He's going to sorrow at being left alone. He's going to sorrow for our sins as he even anticipates the death on the cross by interceding for us and drops of blood coming out of his pores in grief, in sorrow because of sin, not his, but the whole mission that he has to deal with it. He knows this sorrow, but he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And God the Father vindicates him, raises him as the firstborn from the dead. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. Your sorrow will be transformed into joy. Only because Christ has triumphed, Christ is risen, Christ is alive, and we have that, that final, ultimate hope and joy of glory. And we've been reminded of that significantly in our church life the last two years. The hope of glory. One, one commentator, Gibran, puts it kind of poetically this way. The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives. When you are joyous, look deep into your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. Now that is one I had to read and reread and reread and probably still need to keep, wow, joy. Now, we've been focusing on the suffering part. Let's get to the joy part. We rejoice in the cross. The cross is indeed that instrument of death, that instrument of, of torture, and yet in the New Testament, other than in the, the actual narratives describing how it happens and how it accomplishes, in the teaching of the apostles, it is never seen as something sad or bad. It is a symbol that sin has been dealt with that the enemy has been destroyed and that Christ has been vindicated for the cross is empty. 
And you're not being sacrificed over and again. We glory in the cross. We rejoice in the cross. We rejoice in what it means, the resurrection from the dead. We rejoice in the return of Christ. He says, you'll see me again. Now, there's a very historical dimension in this chapter. The disciples are going to see him die. He's going to go into the grave. They'll bury him, and they're not going to see him. But then the third day, he's risen from the dead, and he appears to them. They're terrified, but he appears to them. They will see him again shortly. And he'll wander around with them for 40 days. But there is also, as we think about the whole context, Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. And if I go to prepare, I'm telling you so that I'll, you know I'll come back for you. There is, there is a, a future eschatological, end-time dimension to this. Jesus will return. And we rejoice in that. We live in hope of His return. But there is also this. We rejoice in the requests of Jesus. Whatever you ask the Father, he says in verse 23, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And we can so focus and dwell on what we get and thinking that is the source of joy when what Jesus is saying, when the giver gives the gift, your joy is in the giver who brought it more than it is in the gift they gave. He will hear your prayer. He will answer your prayer. He will come to you because you're forgiven and you will rejoice that He's there. And notice this This joy comes and this prayer comes not in our own name. We have no basis with which to make appeal to the Father, to God. This is kind of a a, a mini-season of birthdays in in our family. Both both our family, we've got one, two, three, four, four of you are in this vantage point. And then my brother's the same. They got all tons of birthdays. Tons. They have the same more kids we do. A bunch of birthdays this season. So, you know, grandpas and grandmas are sending cards and, and uh, when they were little, they, they would get a check from grandpa and grandma. But, the, you know, when, when they're five, they don't have a bank account. So the check's not made in their name. Is usually made in mine, or mine and yours. That complicated it. Oh, I don't have that signature? Oops, here we go back home. It, it, the, the child has no authority to cash the check. It's theirs. It's given to them. But they have no authority, they have no name, no account, by which to go to the bank, cash the check, and get the cash. They need to go on the basis of their father 
or mother, as the case might be. And so, for us, on the basis of Jesus' work to forgive our sins, this, I'm going away for a little while, I'm dying. I'll be raised again, you'll see me again. On that basis, the Father will come to you and he'll give you tremendous blessings and gifts of life, forgiveness, and you will have joy in the name of Jesus for the presence of the Father. Joy of the Father's forgiveness. The purpose of prayer, the purpose of prayer, one of the purposes of prayer, is that our joy may be full. We have full joy in the presence of the one who brings the answer. Well, verses 25 to 30, we must move, move, move along rapidly here. The love of the Father's fellowship. These overlap a bit, don't they? It's like that, those three concentric circles that blend in the middle. Those, was it a Venn diagram? Is that right? Verse 25, it said these things in figures of speech. Yeah. The hour is coming when you no longer when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. When your sorrow has been turned, transformed into joy, then you will be opened to the experience of the Father's love for you. Verse 27, the Father himself loves you because you loved Jesus and have believed that Jesus came from God. So even as joy was the result of forgiveness, now the fulfillment of prayer, so love is the experience of prayer. Joy and love are the experience of prayer, of union with God. Now, we're, again, we're dovetailing these together a bit, and, and here's Oswald Chambers on this idea. He says the idea of prayer is not in order to get answers from God. Prayer is perfect and complete oneness with God. Prayer is a means by which we know the love of the Father. We abide there. We dwell there. We remain there. One, one pastor who's now with the Lord uh, was, asked, was asked by a young boy uh, as he was doing some the, the pastor was doing some uh, visit, um, itinerant ministry, going around different places, little special meetings. And the pastor's getting a little bit of rest. He's actually lying on the hammock in the backyard enjoying the sun out west. And the, the boy of the, of the host family in this particular place comes, how long do you pray? He's on the hammock, right? And the pastor says, 
Oh, fellow, I haven't prayed in years. Now, he did not mean that he didn't pray. And he went on to explain, it's not always about me talking to God. Most of his prayer was enjoying the presence of God, enjoying the Word of God soaking in his own spirit, in his soul. Abiding, dwelling, lingering in the presence of the Father who has given love and joy, forgiveness and fellowship. And His Word is the, the balm that soothes the Spirit. Lingering with God, listening to God. Verses 31 to 33 go on and talk about peace. Jesus said, now you believe? I think there's a bit of edge there. Oh, now you get it. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus had a little bit of, of punch to him. He had a little bit of humor to him, a little bit of, of that sar, sar, satire. I don't know. The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. You'll be scattered each to his own home, and you're going to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone. The Father is with me. But I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This oneness with God is, is then the purpose of Christ. His purpose of His coming, the purpose of His teaching is to have union with God. To have peace. I have said these things to you that in Me you may have peace. He said earlier in chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Not like the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let them not be afraid. Peace. Now, Jesus will experience this peace, this abiding peace of the presence of the Father when all else has turned against Him and run away from Him. The, the only way to everlasting joy and infinite love and surpassing peace is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in me is peace. In Jesus with the Father. To follow Jesus is to know the sorrow of our sin that is turned into joy of forgiveness. To know the suffering of the cross that is the threshold of peace with God. And yet, just like the joy that comes through sorrow, now the peace comes through tribulation. Verse 33. Jesus will experience tribulation, abandonment, death, torture. And he's warned us earlier in this teaching, the way they treated him is the way they're going to treat everyone who bears his name, who follows after him. This is the cost of discipleship. But in the midst of it, God is forging 
a tool, an instrument, a vessel of love, joy, and peace. You, crafted in the image of Christ. Christ-formed, cross-shaped. And Jesus says, be of good courage. I have overcome the world. Because Christ is the victor, we stand. We stand firm. And John would summarize this teaching in his first little letter to us. 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. Everyone who has born, been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That basic truth, God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. To heal, to forgive. Your pardon for sin. And the presence of God now within you by the residing Holy Spirit, enabling and empowering you to overcome. To overcome all that the world throws at you. The power of Jesus through the sorrow, through the tribulation, and coming out the other end and experiencing even now the beginnings of of those birth pangs of love, joy, and peace. And and in this narrative, Jesus has promised the coming of the Comforter, the coming of the Paraclete, the coming of the Holy Spirit of truth. And when He comes, He will bear fruit within all those who have been born of God. And this is what the Apostle says. When you walk by the Spirit, when you're led by the Spirit, when you keep in step with the Spirit, you bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which begins with love, joy, and peace. Is that not what Jesus just taught us? The love of God, the joy of God, and peace of God is ours by the indwelling, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so we end this with that admonition. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. God, we ask that You would do that for us. That You would indeed so fill us to overflowing. Uh, Figuratively, we say, for the Spirit cannot be quantified. But we are vessels of limited capacity, and yet Your infiniteness indwells and abides within us for eternity. And so fill us with Your presence that we would know this joy, love, and peace that comes ultimately from You through Jesus. God, as we, as we ponder this, some of us need to, to confess Jesus as Lord, that Jesus is a Son of God who died for sins and was raised for our life to be born again by the Holy Spirit. And this we ask.
And a good number of us, a good number of us need to be filled afresh to know the joy of our salvation, of rest and peace, to cease our labors, our struggles. For in you is great power. In you we rest. And for you we wait in silence. For you are our salvation, our rock. You are our fortress. We shall not be greatly shaken. You are our hope. For you we shall wait. You are our glory. In you is great power. And to you belong, O Lord, faithful, everlasting love. Wash over us by your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.